Well, let us pray, and then we will come around God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we read your word, we see that you are glorious. And as we read the Gospels, we see your glory in the person of Jesus. And Father, we thank you that we can learn of what he has done, of who he is, of what it means to follow him. And Lord, I just thank you for this passage that's before us this evening. And I acknowledge, Lord, that some of these things that we're going to mention tonight are hard. Lord, they cause us to struggle. But I pray, Lord, that as we read them, they would cause us to humble ourselves as Christ did and to sacrifice our whole lives to following him. We thank you for what he has done for us. Help us as we apply your word to live for your glory in return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 and verses 30 through to 50. That's page 1013 in the church Bibles or page 1572 in the large print. Well, we live in a world today where we're told to elevate ourselves, aren't we? And I just did a search as I was preparing uh, for this message on the different books you can buy about self-promotion. And there are hundreds and hundreds of books you can buy all about yourself. Some of these titles are amazing. The Big Book on Self-Promotion. Or maybe I should buy this one, The Brand Called You. The Ultimate Personal Branding Handbook to Transform Anyone into an Indispensable Brand. Well, sounds quite amazing, doesn't it? Uh, There's lots of others, a couple of other titles. Uh, One's called Get Noticed, Self-Promotion for Creative Professionals. Uh, How to Work a Room, The Ultimate Guide to Savvy Socializing in Person. And there's many, many other titles you can buy if you want to find out how to promote yourself. And we're constantly told, aren't we, that we must promote ourselves if we want to get anywhere in life. But Jesus tells us, that the opposite to this worldly thinking is true. Jesus tells us that greatness comes by humility. We should be living to be last, not promoting ourselves. And we're now into the second section of Mark's Gospel. And if you remember, the first section showed who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. And after Peter declared... On behalf of the disciples, who Jesus is, we come to the second section, which shows what kind of Messiah Jesus will be, a suffering servant who will die for his people. And Jesus, being God, shows such humility in doing this and in saying that he was going to die that the disciples just could not grasp what he was saying. Up until after the resurrection, every time Jesus speaks to the disciples about this, they just never understand it. 
It's beyond their comprehension. And their misconception of Jesus suffering and dying, or rather their misconception that he need not suffer and die, was probably heightened at what we looked at last week when we saw the transfiguration. A humble Messiah was completely against their expectations. They were expecting what they saw on the mountain straight away. And yet Jesus comes and he tells them he's going to suffer and die. And the prediction of his death and resurrection that we looked at in chapter 8, verse 31, is the first of three predictions in Mark that Jesus made. And we see the second in the first section of tonight's passage, in verses 30 to 32. And in this section, Jesus teaches us about the humility that should characterize his people. But he does not teach us about being humble in any way that he doesn't show himself by living it out as an example. Jesus practices what he preaches. And first of all, in verses 30 to 32, we see a humble example. So read, let's read verses 30 to 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. Up till this point, they had been travelling from Caesarea Philippi, and now Jesus was making the journey to Jerusalem, where he was going to die. But he made the journey, it says, quietly. He didn't want anyone to know where they were because he wanted to focus his teaching at this point on his disciples. And also, we know from earlier in the Gospel, the Pharisees were after him, the Herodians were after him, both of those groups wanted to kill him. After he fed uh, 5,000, we know from John's Gospel, people wanted to make him king straight away. Many others followed him, wanting miracles and all sorts of other things from him. But Jesus wanted, at this point, to teach his disciples. He wanted to focus on those who were going to establish the church after he was gone. And furthermore, as we shall see, he wanted to teach them about his suffering and death and remind them why he has come. And there's a tension in this uh, section of Mark between the glory of the Messiah at the transfiguration, and the humiliation of the Messiah in his suffering and death. The disciples got the first bit, but they didn't understand the second. And so Jesus reminds them, in order at this point, I think, to constrain their feelings and excitement at the transfiguration, of how he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and will be killed and rise again. In his previous prediction, he focused on his rejection, but here his focus is on his betrayal or deliverance into those men that would reject him. But in verse 10, we read that the disciples did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him. Perhaps they were afraid because last time Jesus made this prediction and Peter rebuked him, Jesus appeared to call him Satan, and Peter Peter got a stern rebuke from Jesus. Or perhaps they didn't ask him and they were afraid because they didn't like what they thought the answer might be. Either way, they did not understand. 
Again, they understood the person, they understood who Jesus was, but they didn't understand the plan. After the transfiguration, in in verse 10 of this chapter, it tells us that they didn't understand what rising from the dead meant. They didn't understand it physically, because Jesus was the only one that they had seen raised from the dead, and if he was dead, then in their minds, who would do it? But they also didn't understand the spiritual aspect of it either. They just couldn't understand what Jesus was going to do. But Jesus is this kind of Messiah. The Messiah who suffers and dies to be a sacrifice for the sin of his people. And because he had no sin, he did not deserve to die. But Jesus went to the cross willingly to pay for it. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 verse 8, which we read earlier, And being humbled in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Just before Jesus gives a discourse on humility, he shows them what true humility is. He is the ultimate example, isn't he? The God of the universe. We we read that psalm in the beginning. He, He created the stars and planets. He sustains the stars and planets. He brings everything into being. And he laid aside his majesty, came to a sinful earth amongst his enemies and died willingly in the place of sinners, to bring them eternal life. He tells his disciples nothing about humility that he doesn't perfectly example himself. And the rest of the passage follows on from this example. Because Jesus is this kind of Messiah, he then says to his disciples, you will be these kinds of disciples. Because I am this kind of Messiah, you will be these sorts of disciples. And the first type of disciple we are told after this example is to be one with a humble attitude. Look at verses 33 to 41. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. And the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So on the way to Capernaum, the disciples had been arguing. And Jesus asks them what they were arguing about. Now he knew what they were arguing about. But he was getting them to think about what he was, they were doing before he introduced a lesson to change their attitude that was shown up in this dispute. And the disciples did not answer him. They were ashamed and embarrassed. We all know how that feels, don't we? Jesus had just given them an example of humility. And they had completely ignored it and were arguing about who was the greatest. 
Now, it's helpful to understand their culture here as to why they were arguing in the way they did. The Jewish people lived in a very hierarchical society. There were rules such as where you sat in the synagogue, where you sat at the table, how people address you based on where you were in your social scale. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the role models in public life and they were obsessed with status and position. And their disputes, uh, sorry, these disciples were were sure that the kingdom was about to arrive. They'd seen the transfiguration, they were sure it was coming and they wanted to be part of it as the greatest. Just like their cultural role models, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Again, they didn't understand why Jesus came. They didn't understand what it means to follow him. But they knew they hadn't got it right because when he asked them, they went quiet. If you ask someone a question and they, they're all quiet and evasive about the answer, you know there's something wrong, don't you? And that's exactly what was going on here. When I was a manager in software testing, I used to set competitions sometimes for my staff to see who can find the most bugs in a piece of software. And at the end of each day, some of my staff would come and they would show me their stats of how many bugs they'd found. Sometimes they were really scraping the barrel as if, to, you know, if one really was a bug or not a bug. They would, you know, the smallest of things, they would come up to me and say, oh, you know, this is wrong. And really, they were just trying to score points. And then we'd get to the appraisals. And this happens in work uh, all the time. Um, just as I was leaving, I had an appraisal, which was a bit stupid, but anyway. Um, and, and you have to say how great you are and, and show all the reasons why you should be given a pay rise or a bonus or this or that or the other. And in a way, there's, in, in one sense, we're, we're supposed to do that, but that's not how we should be with God. We shouldn't come to God with our stats of how good we are, as if God is going to give us a, a pay rise or something like that. But we can all be this way, can't we? In fact, after reading this, I kind of regret ever giving those competitions at work, if I'm honest with you. But we often place our value on what we have done in our lives. We can place great value on our exam results or our academic um, achievements. We can place great value on our salary. Even in the church, we can think we are the greatest because we have led people to Christ or we preach well or we can play an instrument really well. And all these things are good, but they don't make us great. And boasting about these things can cause disunity just like it did with the disciples. It's amazing how we can value our lives based on these kinds of things, isn't it? People value, see their value. In fact, I was speaking to a man just the other day at, at school and he, he's, uh, he was looking for work and he, and he said to me, I, bl- I place my whole value on who I am on the job I'm doing. And that, but I said to him, that's not who you are. Your value is not based on what you do for a living or how much money you earn. That's not what, it, that's not what makes us the greatest. What does Jesus say about great, the greatest? Well, it says he sat down. Now, sitting down was the position of a rabbi who was teaching. And he sat down to give the disciples a lesson. And he used an object lesson to teach them how rather than being proud and wanting to be the greatest, 
they should have the attitude of humility. And he begins with a very uh, countercultural statement. In his day and in our day, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Who is the greatest? The one who is the servant of all. And in their society, a servant was inferior and regarded as lowly. But in God's kingdom, his new order, this is reversed. And he uses the example of a child which he picks up in his arms. And again, this is countercultural. In those days, children uh, were not protected at all. We learned a little bit about this at our child protection training a few weeks ago. We have child protection, uh, which is great in, in our uh, country today, but in the Roman Empire, this was, this was just completely uh, not the case. In fact, they were treated appallingly a lot of the time. Children were often uh, aborted and were often, uh, if they were born, left abandoned on the streets. In fact, it was, it was Christians who were different to all of this. When the church was established, they took babies and children in as orphans. And the reason that people uh, looked so down on children was partly because of the high infant mortality rate. They didn't want to get too attached. They didn't want a real emotional attachment to, a lot, to their children because there was a high likelihood these children would die. And also, there were just too many mouths to feed. There was no welfare state or anything like that. Uh, no help. So a child was often an inconvenience and was abandoned or sold into slavery because they were unaffordable. And because of these things, children were just looked down upon in an appalling way. It wasn't a case of being seen but not heard. They were just insignificant. They were nothing. Almost worthless. And Jesus, as God, the God of the universe took up a child in his arms. Can you see what this means? He symbolically receives him and serves him and welcomes him. Whoever welcomes one of these little children, the least of people, the insignificant of society, in my name, welcomes me. This child was a picture of the child of God. A Christian should both see themselves as a child not elevated, and serve others as children, as ones that are insignificant in society's eyes. In other words, rather than arguing over who is the greatest, Jesus says, serve one another. Now notice that Jesus doesn't reject their desire for greatness. He just rejects their definition of it. I aspire to be a great man of God. But my definition of a great man of God should not be one who is the greatest preacher that's ever been known or you know, the one with the biggest church. The greatest is one who serves and therefore we, shouldn't, we should desire greatness but we should define greatness as serving and desire that. And again, look at how Jesus shows his humility at the end of verse 37. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. He points to his father in heaven. Jesus is always pointing to the Father, isn't he? Do you realize that how you treat your brothers and sisters in the church is how you treat Jesus? That should make us stop and think, shouldn't it? That's the applic- an application here, isn't it? That Jesus says that we are his children and he wants us to serve one another. We are a child of God and Jesus says, 
Whoever welcomes one of them welcomes me. How you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ is how you treat Jesus. That should make us stop and think when we want to criticise or climb over or reject a brother or sister in the church. You see, we need to be free from the concern of status and position and humble ourselves to be servants of all, even those deemed insignificant. And in our general lives as well, outside of the church, we should think about how we apply this. So managers should honour those who work under them at work. We should care for those who are elderly, especially our relatives. We should help out in the home with things like dishes and cleaning and all those kinds of things that we look at as quite menial jobs, but as being a servant of all, we should be helping in those areas in the home. And even in the church, children can be seen as an annoyance, insignificant, noisy, but all of us should be willing to serve even the children rather than complain about their noise levels. But this humble attitude extends not only to our church but to others as well. And John highlights this problem that the disciples encountered. Look, uh, look down a bit further. He, he was saying about how uh, someone was driving out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't one of us. Now, Jesus had given power to others who were not of the 12 disciples. An example of that is in, uh, we, don't, we don't have time to turn there, but Luke chapter 10, 72 were sent out by, by Jesus there. And in that passage, we read how demons submitted to them in Christ's name. So, although he wasn't one of the twelve, he was doing something that Jesus had given others to do. Perhaps they were annoyed because of their recent failure earlier in this chapter to cast out demons themselves. It may even have been that they were zealous for what is right and they really thought that it was right that only one of the twelve should cast out demons. But either way, their attitude was wrong. Jesus uh, told them, do not stop him. This person was doing this in Christ's name. Now, this wasn't just using Christ's name in a wrong way. If it was, Jesus undoubtedly would have rebuked him. But this is saying the truth and acting in the truth. If a person does this, he says they are for Christ. And if the person is not against Christ, they are for Christ. This guy was casting out a demon, but even, Jesus says, if he had just given them a cup of water in the name of Christ, then he would have been rewarded. A cup of water is is the least that you can do for somebody, isn't it? But if it is done in service for Jesus, then it's a good thing. And if we serve other Christians, those who belong to the Messiah, in any way, big or small, Jesus says that it is honourable. And look how you gain reward. It's through service in the name of Jesus. In Christ's kingdom... You've got, to be, you've got to get low in order to be high. Greatness is through serving. But in this last example that John was complaining about, we realise that actually we should also rejoice in the truth wherever we find it. We should be humble enough to rejoice in the truth even if it's in unexpected places. So we should be humble enough uh, as older people to learn from the younger people. And not reject what they say because of their age. 
That takes humility. But even if it's in an unexpected place like that, we must be willing to learn from them. We should rejoice in the success of other churches that are honouring the name of Jesus, even those outside of our denomination, even if they have some beliefs that we might not think are quite what we would believe. Not heresy, of course, but sometimes on these secondary issues, we can get quite proud when we should be humble. In fact, I was uh, watching uh, something the other day about revival, and someone said that if we really want revival, we've got to be happy for it to start at the church down the road. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? And also, I was thinking in in applying this as well, we we need to have a a global vision of the kingdom of God, not just a personal vision. That means allowing uh, ourselves to put effort into good people who we train up in order to leave us and go somewhere else. That takes humility as well, doesn't it? To train people up so they can preach the truth elsewhere. So we need to follow Christ's example and have a humble attitude that shows itself in service to others. But a humble attitude has impact on our lives. So our attitude follows through in our obedience, and that's the next uh, part of this passage, a humble obedience. Let's look at verses 42 to 50. Now before we read these, just to warn you, these are hard words that Jesus says here. This has been, uh, of all the messages I've preached in the last number of years, I have to say this has been the hardest. This is tough when we read this. So I'll warn you now, this is, this is difficult. But it's true, and we need to hear it because it's important. So let's read what Jesus talks about when he talks about how we are to be obedient to him. So he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to go with two hands into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another. As we humble ourselves in obedience to God, our obedience becomes radical. And Jesus, still using the example of the child, as a child of God says, that he takes seriously the sin of causing a believer to stumble. He takes it seriously. The use of the word stumble here is to cause to sin or to prevent them from doing what is right. And he says it's better that for that person if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. A millstone was, it was a big stone slab that was used to grind grain. And this one was a large one. Sometimes there was ones that were used by, uh, by, by women uh, or men, but this one was a large one that would be pulled by a donkey. Okay? It, was a, it, was a, it was a big statement because it's a big millstone, a massive one. And if this was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, you're going you're gonna to keep going down. There's no coming back up. 
And this kind of punishment was a real offence to the Jews. Drowning was, was an offensive and um, just a horrible way to die. And it was very striking. And Jesus says that you would be better off dead, talking to his disciples, than leading people astray into sin or stopping them believing in him. And it's something sobering, isn't it, for all of us. I would be better off dead than leading you to stumble. That's what Jesus says here. It's better off for me, as a leader, to have a millstone around my neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause people to stumble. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying here. This is serious stuff. So Jesus takes seriously, in a general way, you could apply this, that he takes seriously uh, and will deal with teachers that undermine faith of children in schools and governments that undermine faith in children. He takes seriously those who, through hypocrisy, set a sinful example. He takes seriously those that persecute Christians and cause them to stumble or not be able to worship in certain ways. He takes all this seriously But let's bring this home to us. What about you? We have liberty in Christ. But sometimes what is not a sin for you can cause others to sin. So don't flaunt your liberty in a way that causes others to stumble. So for an example, uh, and this is just an example, but alcohol is an example of this. For some of us, that's not a sin. For some of us... It is a sin. For some of us, it's a real cause for stumbling. So if you are doing that, that's causing someone else to stumble, that's not good. That's serious. Okay? What about for those in in teaching ministries? When I was uh, uh, on a training course one time, uh, one of my favourite teachers was a guy called John Gillespie, and he said, when you're a teacher... He says, pray that God will deliver you from two things. Pray that God will deliver you from sloppiness in your preparation and from boredom as you speak. But for us in teaching ministries, don't be sloppy in your preparation. Don't try and wing it. I would rather you phone me up and say, I can't teach Sunday school today because I haven't prepared properly than teach it in a way that is wrong and causes others to stumble. All of us, especially those who are leaders, are an example. We are examples to others in the church, in our community. And I ask you, is your example and way of life leading others to Jesus, or is it causing them to stumble? One of the the scariest things I learned early on as a leader when I was in Ivybridge is that when I speak, people tended to listen to me. That's a frightening thing. It's frightening And I must pray, you know, Lord, stop me if I'm in any way causing anyone to stumble rather than lead them to Jesus. It's better if I had a millstone round my neck and I was thrown into the sea. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's better better if we are cut off rather than being a stumbling block to to others. But Jesus goes further. And says that in our humble obedience, we also need to cut off those things that make us stumble ourselves. So he takes 
seriously causing others to sin, but look how seriously he takes any sin in our lives. Now, Jesus isn't literally saying here that we should mutilate ourselves. If we did that, that would not cure the problem of our heart. But what he is saying is that sin is serious. This is serious. The sins of the hand, what you do, the foot, where you go, the eye, what you look at, need to be cut off at the root cause. And this means radical sacrifice. Whatever the sacrifice, it is better to do it than to go to hell. Now you might think, well, isn't Jesus being a bit extreme here? Well, this question might be asked again when we look at what hell is. Now hell is, uh, the, the word used for hell is the word Gehenna here. And Gehenna was a physical place that lay to the south of Jerusalem. It was also known as the Valley of Hinnom. And at this valley, it was originally a pleasant suburb of Jerusalem. But people there uh, began worshipping the god Molech. And they would sacrifice children to this god, this false god, in this valley. And in 2 Kings chapter 23, King Josiah, who was a good king, he destroyed it and turned it into a place where everything that is vile and filthy, such as the dead animals from sacrifices, were, were cast out and burned. It basically became a massive garbage dump, a massive place where all the rubbish would go and it would be burned constantly. It was a horrible place. It would have uh, just smelled awful with all the rotting carcasses and it would be constantly being burnt up. This is the word Jesus describes as hell, this place. And the word Gehenna is the word used almost exclusively in the New Testament that is translated as hell. So what does this tell us about hell? Well, although it's not likely to be literal fire because we're not literally going to be sent to the Valley of Hinnom, hell is at least as bad as what Jesus is describing. If heaven can only be better than what we read of in Scripture, then hell can only be worse. It can only be worse. So it will be dreadfully painful where God's glory is absent and his wrath is poured out on people. Now this, this side of eternity, all of us, the, the, the Christian and the non-Christian, benefit from what, what we know as common grace. So the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. But in hell that is not the case. There is no, uh, no, common, no good thing. And one uh, author that I read said that everything that is good about the humanity of the unrepentant on earth will be stripped off at the judgment. It will be awful. And we learn from this in the Bible as a whole that hell is a real place, a place of punishment and conscious torment that lasts forever. And Jesus quotes words here from Isaiah 66. 
He says, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. These are words of judgment against Israel. And around Jerusalem, people knew what this meant. You see, in, in the Valley of Hinnom, this fire sometimes could go out. And the worms in the, in the valley there in Jerusalem would die, but, but not so in hell. This lasts forever. And it's not easy to talk about. And I, I find it hard. Because I know that people in my family are going there. But it should spur me to share the gospel with passion. And although I wish in some ways uh, that this wasn't true, uh, the Bible says a few things to remember. First of all, this punishment is justified. And if we don't think that this is just, we don't get the holiness of God. You see, God is absolutely perfect, absolutely holy. In every possible way that you can think of holiness, God God is absolutely holy. And if we don't understand that, we can't understand hell. And if we don't understand hell, or we we, we want to think that this can't be so, this is horrible, God, God is a God of love, this couldn't possibly be, you have not grasped the absolute holiness of God. Hell is what I deserve. I deserve it. Because I've, I've sinned against the holy God. So the first truth is it is justified. But the second thing to remember is that in his love, God has made a way out by sending Jesus to take our punishment. He suffered for me. He suffered for me. I do not have to go here. Next week, uh, we'll look at Romans 8. And Romans 8, verse 1, is a wonderful verse. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I tell you, if you are here this evening, and you are on your way to this place, there is a way with Jesus that you do not have to go there. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. And I urge you to share that good news with those that you know that are on their way to this place. It's, it's awful. And I can't apologise for struggling to, to get through it. So is Jesus being extreme? I don't think that he can be too extreme in warning people to avoid hell. Because it really is as awful or worse than is described here. And it's by his grace that he warns us. You know, when I was a child, we had, um, we used to play a lot, of, a lot of football, and there was a field that used to have an electricity box in the field. And it didn't have a roof. And the ball would often go into the box. And there was warning signs all around the box. Don't go in here. Danger of death. But I used to go in there a lot. I knew not to touch anything. But whenever a parent would see me go in that box or even try to climb it, they would scream and shout 
and they would come and, and, and grab us down so we couldn't go in. Was those warnings, were those parents too extreme? No. There was a danger, a real danger, and people have died from going in those things. And eventually, uh, due to a petition, the council put a roof on the box. Jesus isn't being too extreme. He's warning. He's warning us, like those signs on that box. But, at this point, he's speaking to his disciples. So does this mean that even disciples can go to hell? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that someone who is a true disciple of Christ will not go to hell. I've said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But this is not, you know, when we become a Christian, it's not the end of our process of transformation. We become more like Jesus as we cut off sin. And the initial commitment to Christ becomes a lifelong pattern. Now, Christians will not go to hell, but this is not Jesus' point here. Jesus' point is to highlight how serious he takes sin. Sin is so serious, such an offence to God, that people are going to the hell that he describes. That's how serious sin is to God. It's so serious, it condemns people to hell. And in the same way that God takes sin seriously, he wants his people to take it seriously too. Although we are saved from hell, we should look at these verses and realise how serious sin is to God and not take this lightly. Because of sin, people are going to hell. And the sinless Son of God has paid for it. So what is the eye or the hand or the foot in your life? Is it your internet or your phone connection? Do you need to cut it off? Maybe it's your friends or family members. If they're causing you to sin, then you need to stop spending so much time with them. Jesus would say they're better off with a millstone around their neck. What about the job you're doing? Is it causing you to sin? Get up and get another job if you have to. Are there places you go that cause you to sin? Stop going there. Cut off all opportunity. And you know, like I, um, in that electricity box, we made a roof over the box so that there was just no way that we could get in. Put some kind of roof over your sin so that there's just no way that you can get there. Be radical. Jesus is radical here. Cut it off. We need to be drastic because sin is serious. And I can't stress this point enough. In fact, I don't need to stress it any more than Jesus does. He talks of hell here because that's how serious sin is to God. And by the way, he doesn't hate the sin of a non-Christian any more than he does a Christian. He hates all sin. Just because you're saved, it doesn't mean that your sin is any more acceptable or pleasing to God in any way. And in fact, I would go as far as saying it's worse because you know better. You know better than that. Sin is serious. This is serious stuff. You know, we spend so much of our time worrying about death. And in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, in fact, death is never a problem for a Christian. If we would worry 
about sin like we worried about death, our Christian lives would be so much better off. John Owens said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In our Christian lives, if we don't do the radical things necessary to cut out sin, then we're killing the abundant life that Jesus promised us. And we will not have joy in our salvation. And Jesus goes on to describe it as losing our saltiness. Although we won't suffer the fires of hell, we suffer the fires of purification. Verse 49 tells us that everyone will be salted with fire. Now this is a reference back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. In Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13, we read of the grain offering being seasoned with salt. And the grain offering was an offering of devotion to God and it was sprinkled with salt. And the salt was described as the salt of the covenant. And at the end of the offering, this salt was not burnt up. It always remained. So it reminded people that as they made their offering to God, God's covenant faithfulness remains with them. So it appears to be talking about consecration, where we sacrifice to God in devotion as the salt of his covenant promise of eternal life in heaven remains with us. So as we sacrifice to God, his promises remain with us. And in the New Testament, we're told to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, dying to self, cutting off those parts of our lives that cause us to sin, humble obedience and devotion to God. They are sacrifices, salted with fire because they can be painful for us. And it's these sacrifices that make us distinct as Christians. It says salt is good. It makes us distinctive. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Well, how does our life lose its saltiness, its distinctiveness? When we entertain sin and we don't cut it off. When we're more concerned with our position and status rather than the glory of God. When we cause others to stumble rather than lead them to repentance. And how can we be salty again? He says, really, by flavouring each other. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Serve one another rather than arguing over who's the greatest. How can we be salty, distinctive Christians? By following the humble example with a humble attitude of radical obedience to our King Jesus. And in response to what Jesus has said, we're going to sing a couple of songs thinking about surrender. First of all, we're going to stand and sing, I surrender all. And I wonder, can you sing this from your heart? Are you prepared to sacrifice and surrender whatever it takes, however hard, however difficult, However radical that may be, are you prepared to surrender it all to Jesus who surrendered his all for you? Let's stand together and and sing.